Good evening. My name is Moira Shuri, and I'm the Interim Executive Director of Zocalo Public Square. Thank you for joining us. Our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Tonight, instead of convening in person, we are delighted to be streaming this conversation online for the very first time. We also invite you to participate in the live chat and send in your comments and questions directly to the panelists. I'd like to tell you a little bit about Zocalo Public Square. We are a Los Angeles-based nonprofit syndicating ideas journalism to over 200 media outlets worldwide. At last count, we have also presented over 600 live events in 33 cities, nine US states, and six countries. And now we're streaming online. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. The internet can be a lonely place, but tonight we are turning that adage on its head by opening up our shared space and time to connect with the many people who registered for this event. Please be patient if we encounter technical difficulties. For the last two weeks, the Zocalo team has been working tirelessly to make this event's digital gathering a reality. We want to thank our colleagues at Arizona State University for their incredible support. This event would not be possible without them. Also, our panelists have trusted us and stayed the course as we have moved through all the variations of bringing tonight's discussion to you. Tomorrow morning, just before noon, we will post a written summary, video and audio from tonight's event on our website. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Apple Podcasts. And as always, we will be live tweeting tonight's discussion under the handle at the public square. Our next event will be on April 14th. We will be live streaming from Fresno, California, where our panelists will discuss how can we make farm work healthier? We are eager to see all of you again in person, but until then, we hope you continue to join us for important discussions that shape our world respect our intelligence, and expand our minds. Sign up for more on our website, www.zocalopublicsquare.org. Now it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Elise Hu. Elise is a host at large with NPR West. She was the founding bureau chief and international correspondent for NPR's Seoul office, where she covered the Koreas, Japan, and filed stories from across Asia. She has written for the New York Times, the Taipei Times, the Austin Chronicle, and she reports for Tech News Daily. She will be the host of TED Talks Daily starting in April. Please welcome Elise Hu. Hello and welcome to, the, to tonight's Zocalo Public Square event, How Does Music Change Your Brain? My name is Elise Hu. I am a host at large for NPR, and we were all supposed to be together tonight in person, <laughs> But obviously, these are unprecedented times, so we're excited to be bringing you our very first Zocalo Public Square event that is live streamed, and the panelists are connecting tonight by Zoom. I'm super excited to introduce our panelists. We have two neuroscientists, and among this group, um, an, an Academy Award winner, as well as songwriters among us, too. Um, I am not one of them. The first panelist I'm going to introduce tonight is Dr. Mark Tremo. He's a neuroscientist and a musicologist who researches music, perception, and cognition. He is the director of the Institute for Music and Brain Science, and he lectures at UCLA. He is also a songwriter. We also have Dr. Asal Habibi. She is a research psychologist and a principal investigator at the USC Brain and Music Lab. She studies how musical training affects children's development. I'm really excited to hear about this. She's also a classically trained pianist. So there's lots of musicians among us. And finally, she probably needs no introduction, but Mary Steenburgen joins us tonight. She is an Academy Award-winning actress who currently stars in the NBC series, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. She is also a songwriter and was recently shortlisted for an Academy Award for her best original song, called Glasgow, No Place Like Home, featured in the film Wild Rose. Panelists, thank you for joining tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Dr. Thanks Mark Tremo, why don't I, thank you for joining. Um, Dr. Mark Tremo, why don't I start with you? Um, the title of this panel, of course, is How Does Music 
changed the brand. You have really dedicated the bulk of your career to this. And so why don't you kind of be the leadoff hitter tonight and explain to us why, why music is so powerful and why its effect on our brains um, is so meaningful. There are two main routes, at least, uh, through which music can excite us, move us, evoke emotions. Um, there's a wonderful book I'd recommend to your audience uh, called Emotion and Meaning in Music by Leonard Meyer. Um, uh, most of us in the field, um, certainly when we were uh, beginning in the field, um, familiarized ourselves and studied uh, Leonard. And what he points out is there are two main routes to deriving emotion and meaning through music. One is the so-called absolutist route. Um, it's more typical of music like Bach and Mozart. It's intramusical, it's about itself. And um, in that absolutist route, what songwriters and composers do is they manipulate our expectancies for where a melody, harmony, and rhythm are going in a piece of music. So as a songwriter or a composer would say, set up an expectation and then violate it, as in appoggiatura, for example. Um, and it's through that of violation and satisfaction of the expectancies that are generated um, that we can evoke emotion and meaning through music. That's the intramusical route, um, the so-called absolutist route. The other main route um, is the referential route, the associative route, whereby um, uh, some piece of music, like any other sound, um, evokes associations with your own personal history or some um, events in the past, some cultural knowledge that we have, as far as the appropriateness of a ritual and, and where we're applying it. And it's through that referential route that's more typical of, for example, program music, like in uh, Berlioz's uh, Symphony Fantastique, um, for Vivaldi's uh, Seasons, uh, making reference to something else and deriving meaning that way. Um, but that that's where Meyer stopped and, and um, he was more of a classicist, but I think we all know that um, we also derive emotion and meaning in music through other modalities other than the auditory modality. For example, moving to the music, dancing to the music. You feel yourself move, you, you stimulate the vestibular system, that generates emotion and meaning. Um, we know that um, uh, scene design and stage lighting is very important and costuming. Um, the visuals matter a lot in conveying emotion and meaning in the context of music. Um, and um, so there's, there's more than just the auditory sense. And, and then one must look at it and ask, what other type of mental activity do humans do that activates so many different parts of the brain in real time um, and is fun? Right. <laughs> well, Doctor, speaking of fun, I'll bring in Dr. Habibi because her research centers so much around children and the development of young brains. And so, Dr. Habibi, if, if you could just talk a little bit about what's happening to our brains themselves and when, when they are young, when we are babies and, and on, and why music plays a role or how it plays a role. Yeah, so basically everything that Dr. Cremo mentioned applies in children as well. We know that um, infants, as young as a few months old, um, they can synchronize their movement of their body and their face to rhythm of music. We know children, when they are uh, moving to a rhythm uh, and synchronizing with a rhythm, tend to be more prosocial towards the other people. In my own research, we have been following children a little bit older since they are six years old. And, and we look at their development of their social abilities, their emotional development, and also their cognitive skills. And then we, can, uh, we have been seeing that children who have been learning music and actually learning to playing an instrument, uh, um, just engaging their sensory and motor um, systems, um, they 
have been, um, they have, uh, we have seen that they're better in their social skills. They are better with their empathy. That's one of the tasks that you're very interested in that they show more empathy towards others um, for social behavior. They tend to share more and to help more. Um, and then in terms of the cognitive skills, we also see that children who have been having music training are better uh, with um, their really a, a, a kind of a different skills in, in cognitive domain, including language development, um, also cognitive skills such as executive function. One of the interesting things that um, we have seen that I think it really applies to the times that we are um, uh, currently in is that um, one of the skills that we've seen children who have had music training develop is the development of impulse control and delayed gratification. So um, somehow learning to play music and kind of having to building blocks, one block, one block, and um, bar by bar to accomplish playing a musical piece um, results into having this um, skill of delaying a, 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 a reward to a future time. So not wanting to have an immediate reward, a small immediate reward, but waiting for a, a, a reward in the future, which is kind of like a skill set like patience and inhibitory control. And we know that it has really um, uh, implications in terms of development, academic development, but also general success in life. So really um, a variety of skills, both in social domain and cognitive domain. And it's important to note that when, when you go and learn music as a child, when you put your children in, into music program, you are not sending them to learn um, delayed gratification or memory or language. <laughs> right. You're sending them to learn music. Um, and, and it's supposed, it's fun. It, it connects people with each other, but, um, it, it's, it's really encouraging and rewarding for us as scientists to see that not only we see benefits in the musical domain, also in other skills that are very beneficial to general life. And does music and being exposed to it, either listening to it or playing it, um, does it continue to change or affect our brain throughout life? So we are focusing, because of your research, on children and their brains as they're super flexible and developing, right? But um, for people who are in adulthood or, or older, um, does music continue to have an effect on our brains? And either, either Mark or Athal, you can jump in on this. Well, um, I'm happy to answer and then let Dr. Tremo um, uh, continue. Is, um, yes, the, the short answer is yes. Any, any amount of music training um, at any point of life seem to have effects, neuroplastic effects, both in the terms of the function of the brain and the structure of the brain. Um, it obviously depends on the age and the, the, the frequency of training, but we have um, studies shown, not from my lab, but from other labs, um, nationwide and internationally that show as little as six months of learning an instrument would have impact in the actual um, cortical thickness of the brain. This is kind of the layer of the cortex um, that has the gray matter and we see that changes in the cortical thickness of adults and older, uh, older adults as a result of music training. So yes, the oh. result continues in terms of changing of the brain and obviously the skills that are associated with it. So even if we as adults tried to take guitar lessons or piano lessons and then quit after a year or something, it was still enough to make a small impact is what you're saying. Yes. And, 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 and a sensory motor learning, the difficult learning, um, you have to learn how to manage reading abstract symbols and then translate them into this fine motor movement on an instrument. And for the brain to learn this task and fine tune, it takes a lot of work. But once you do it, um, it does have um, changes both in the auditory system, in the motor system um, that seem to continue. Yeah, but Elise, um, you know, the, the fundamental rule of neuroplasticity is use it or lose it. Mm. So if you're going to quit after a short period of time, you may have uh, gained it um, in the way that uh, Dr. Habib has explained to us but um, it's use it or lose it. Correct. Kind of like foreign languages. Very much so. And, and yes. probably not very different since musical aspects of language are as essential to communication as phonemes and words themselves. Well, this is a great opportunity to bring in um, Mary Steenburgen because Mary 
went through a rather extraordinary experience after she went in for a routine surgery on her arm. Um, so it's, we all know, I mean, the neuroscientists, of course, know that there are neurons that extend into your arm, you know, our nerve cells. And so, uh, but it led to changes in Mary's brain. Mary, I'll let you pick up the story from here and tell us what happened. Um, it was actually a, a very kind of innocuous surgery, but I did go under general anesthetic. And when I came out from underneath, um, my arm was fine, but I felt very different. I felt as though the sound of my brain had changed. Um, I was um, obsessed with anything musical. And when I mean obsessed, I mean that it was very hard for me to take any focus off of anything, uh, if there was any music uh, in the room. Words and street signs uh, all became part of a sort of musical tornado. Um, if I had been needing to work at that moment as an actor, I'm quite sure I wouldn't have been able to do it because I couldn't focus on anything but what I was hearing in my head, which was music, um, mm -hmm. enough to learn lines or to work with another actor. Obviously, this has settled down a lot, but <laughs> to this day, my brain is different from whatever it was that occurred during that experience. And in the first um, in the first couple of well in the first month of it it was quite distressing because I just didn't know what was happening to me and it felt a little crazy and I wanted my old much quieter mind back and um, when I realized it wasn't going to go back the way it was um, I'm a mother of four I'm a grandmother I'm a wife. Um, I had a lot of people counting on me, so I just decided, I guess I'm going to have to learn to take what's in my, what I'm hearing and find a way to express it um, in songs. And so I first started studying songwriting structure by looking at the songs of people I admired and really understanding why they chose uh the words that they chose and the melodies that they chose. And eventually I started writing my own songs. I took it to a friend of mine, uh, Mike Benjamin, that lives on Martha's Vineyard, that's a wonderful musician and singer. And um, together we crafted these songs that he sang that I was writing. And I sent them anonymously to, um, to an amazing music lawyer um, who then decided he wanted to work with what he thought was a young person that, <laughs> um, that had sent him the songs. And so when I went in to meet him and he said, Mary Steenbridge, and I said, yes, and you're a lawyer and you already said you wanted to work with me and you know, <laughs> the ramifications of age discrimination are, very serious. So anyway, he and I've been working together ever since. And I wrote for quite a few years for Universal Music. And I'm writing for Warner Chapel Music now. I write songs for movies um, and TV, the song that Elise mentioned. Um, I was honored to tie with Elton John and Bernie Taupin for a Critics' Choice Award this year for the song Glasgow, uh, which I co-wrote with Caitlin Smith and Kate York for the movie Wild Rose. Um, that's Mary, about we the are shortest, going to put a link shortest to that version song. I can tell of that crazy story. Fantastic. And um, Mary shared the link to her song um, with us at Zocalo Public Square. And so we'll include that link with our um, Zocalo page for this event, because this is going on live, but of course this video will also be taped. So you should be able to enjoy Mary's music as well as um, a curated playlist of a bunch of songs that we panelists contributed for our tonight's event. So um, Mary, that's 
such a wild story. Congratulations on all your success. And I want to bring the neuroscientists back in now because I would love for you all, if you can, one of you to jump in and help us understand how Mary, after this surgery, woke up and magically became an award-winning musician. How was she hearing so much music well, in her by head? The way, by the way, that surgery was um, April um, 17, 2007. Um, and um, part of how... I'm able to do what I'm able to do is there was a steep learning curve. And when I write with people very often, most of the time they're in their twenties and I have to be humble because I'm almost always the least talented musician in the room. I'm playing catch up uh, with a piano and bizarrely my first instrument that I was really attracted to after this was the accordion. Um, so uh, part of, part of what the answer to all this is honestly the same old thing that causes any advancement, which is the number of hours that you spend writing music and, and failing and trying again. And, and, um, so it's just a lot of beautiful work that I'm honored to do. And Dr. Mark Tremo, that gets back to the point you were making, right? About repetitive exposure. I've seen um, over the course of my career many patients with brain damage and of course the field of neurology is devoted uh, to uh, caring for diagnosing patients who have brain damage and um, Mary you remind me a lot of Oliver Sacks's case Tony who got hit with lightning and became right. um, preoccupied with um, piano music. Um, and, you know, th there's, a, there's a combination of things. One, one I, I would joke and say, well, what was the surgeon playing in the OR? Because um, I remember even as a medical student uh, way back when um, uh, being surprised that uh, the surgeon who was taking out the gallbladder was listening to Dark Side of the Moon. So I would, and our brain stems, in fact, um, one way to, to ensure that um, there is no brain damage intraoperatively is by recording brainstem auditory evoke responses and showing the integrity of the electrical activity in the brain stem and probably at least some very rudimentary aspects of the conscious experience of music. So um, I, I would I would recommend that you ask your surgeon what we was he was playing. All joking aside, I think like with Tony, there's no way to know exactly what happened. Um, I think those of us who deal with it enough are more comfortable with that sort of ambiguity about a medical condition than than individual patients are. But the fact of the matter is, general anesthesia does alter the function of the cerebral cortex and also the thalamus. Um, and it uh, is a somewhat traumatic experience to go through a surgery at some level anyway. And then you look at the individual. We're talking about Mary. This is, you know, a major creative and artistic force, period. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, overlap when we talk about expectancy generation. That's, that's basically the narrative arch. Any drama, um, any piece of music, any novel, um, really deals with tension relaxation schema. You start at home, you go away from it, there's conflict, and then there's conflict resolution, and you go back home. That's the narrative arch. So uh, Mary had that already in spades, built in from decades um, as an artist. Um, so in, in some sense, the substrate was there very much so to begin with, why it became music as opposed to oil painting, um, it'd, it'd be very hard to know, other than to say, I, in my own experience, have had a patient with head trauma uh, that changed his musical experience. Um, clearly, uh, Dr. Sachs had one with an electrical uh, injury to the brain, and Mary's follows general anesthesia. This is a great time as we're talking about kind of medical treatments 
Um, what do we know, maybe Dr. Habibi, you could take this. What do we know about music's potential as a treatment for chronic conditions or um, for problems like addiction or anxiety? Yes, uh, fortunately now there has been more interest and investment in terms of looking at the potential therapeutic benefits uh, of music. One thing I'd like to highlight is the new initiative of the National Institute of Health and the National Endowment of the Arts in collaboration with the Kennedy Center of really putting investment in terms of understanding the mechanisms under which music can be used as a therapeutic tool. Uh, we know that many, many conditions can benefit from music. There's good evidence that music can help depression and anxiety. Um, hmm. In my own work, we are looking at um, music participation and speech and noise perception in older adults. So for example, we know that older adults, as they go through aging, they tend to have problems with their hearing. And most of the time, they have problems with hearing in a noisy environment. Um, so at a, in a restaurant, at a cafe, uh, everything is loud. So they can't really detect the, the relevant speech, the noise. Uh, one of the studies that we're doing right now, having old, we're having older adults coming to our laboratory, testing their hearing and speech and noise perception. And then we have them to go through a 16-week intervention in a choir. And our goal is to see whether participation in the choir is helping with their hearing skills. And we know that these hearing skills, if you go to a restaurant and can, eat, can hear better and can have a better conversation with others, you tend to do more social activities. So by default, it also um, results in better social and emotional well-being. Another um, other types of... Um, uh, of, of therapeutic effects of music. Um, there is really good work done on music and, and Alzheimer's uh, and dementia, also in Parkinson's. So there is a lot of choir studies right now going on around the country, also in Canada, looking at effects of music participation, specifically choir, because choir um, involves singing. You basically carry your music instrument with you. You don't have to um, have a new musical instrument. Um, and it's something that's been with us for, for many, many, many years, probably through evolution. We know how to kind of bond together and sing together. And it does seem to learning how to synchronize, learning how to pay attention to the emotional um, uh, states of others uh, does have that bonding capacity between us. And then it also helps, for example, in Parkinson's disease, it, it helps with movement and generation of movement, something that often patients with Parkinson's suffer from. Um, so, uh, yes, over the board, I think music has really potential for therapeutic aspects, both in children, adults, and older adults. And there are good data. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's actually a growing um, amount of evidence. What's important, Elise, is there's such a rich anecdotal experience going back millennia. Remember, Apollo was the god of both medicine and music. And Aesculapius used uh, music in the uh, temples to Apollo for healing purposes. I mean, the anecdotal evidence is rich. What, what needs to happen, and, and part of the mission of, of our nonprofit, is to advance the randomized controlled clinical studies that can be published in high-impact medical journals and influence how we incorporate music into healthcare, um, get hospital administrators and uh, the managers now of healthcare um, to realize the benefit, insurers, third-party payers to recognize the benefit. And to do that, frankly, we, we're going to have to do randomized controlled clinical trials just like you do for drug development. And we very much want to do that, um, but it's not easy to fund those experiments. So um, until we get that kind of evidence then we're going to be uh, still in this stage of knowing and applying it, but not necessarily getting the sort of uh, funding that we need. And, and, and part of the tragedy there is music, everyone who's sick, at, and we all get sick at, at multiple points in our lives, knows that associated with illness is anxiety and fear and depression um, uncertainty, um, and, so, and often physical pain. So music cuts across all disease states because they're all associated with those, those problems. 
And then there are, um, as Asal pointed, pointed out, these very specific applications, like in Parkinson's disease, because let's face it, there are cultures that don't separate dance and music. You, you move to music, that's a given. So music has uh, a connection with the auditory system that we exploit in patients with Parkinson's disease and movement disorders, and that we uh, could, could do a lot better exploiting in the vast number of, of Americans with stroke to help them recover movement after hemiparesis. So um, there's specific applications, the Alzheimer population, uh, nostalgia turns out to be a very important means of controlling agitation um, in patients with dementia um, and avoiding um, unnecessary psychotropic jug, drug use. So um, it's, such a, it's such a powerful vehicle to take people back to their youth. Um, I think we've all had that experience. I, I um, had at UCLA, we had um, uh, the Semmel Friends, uh, the Semmel Institute had a Coco showing because that wonderful animated movie just crystallized in its um, denouement, the uh, memory of the grandmother coming back through the vehicle of music. Mark, Dr. Mark Tremo, I'm listening to you talk about this and hear you mentioning words like fear and anxiety and uncertainty and pain. And it occurs to me that I should ask a very practical question because a lot of us collectively are feeling the trauma of this global pandemic that we're a part of right now and feeling a lot of those things like anxiety and uncertainty. And I wonder um, in a practical sense, based on the two researchers that are joining us tonight, what are ways that we could use music to feel better connected, either individually, um, if we're not feeling okay right now, or um, with others who we are physically isolated from? Yeah, well, well music is fundamentally a social um, uh, activity. I think uh, Sal emphasized that in, in the children and how important it is to social development. I think there are at least two of us on the panel, Mary, who maybe can um, hearken back to the assassination of President Kennedy and experiencing that as children and seeing an entire nation um, in, in a terrible grief reaction. Um, that happened in November of 1963. And Mary, I'd be interested in your take on this, but I don't think it's totally a coincidence that two and a half months later, the Beatles had three consecutive shows on Sunday at Ed Sullivan and helped to bring us out of our national depression to the point where they had numbers one, two, three, four, and five on the top 10 billboard charts in April of 1964. Um, I, I thought that was a remarkable um, experience in my childhood and, and certainly the Beatles experience is a large part of why I've devoted my life to, to music, whether it be science or songwriting. Well, Mary, why I, don't you jump in there? I, I connect with you on that. Uh, I saw the Beatles uh, the summer after fifth grade. It was my first mm -hmm. concert in Houston, Texas. Um, I actually... Uh, here in my living room have a copy of the newspaper, the Houston Chronicle the next day, the heading was 300 wow. Beatles fans taken to hospital. And um, <laughs> it's a little difficult when the Beatles are your very first concert to go to concerts ever again, but I do. <laughs> um, and one thing I would say to this moment in time is that I think most of us saw the people in Italy singing from their balconies and making music with pots and pans and tambourines and whatever they mm. had to make music. And it not only um, put smiles on their faces and lifted them up, but it lifted all of us up that saw that. And I think it's because music, whether it's with lyrics or not with lyrics, it tells a story of who we are and what we feel in our heart. Um, our show that we're doing, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, is about uh, a young woman, my daughter, who actually has um, develops the ability to hear people's heart songs. So maybe on the outside, they're 
happy and fantastic and um, everybody's favorite person. But when she hears them, their heart song, it is um, the song Mad World. Um, and uh, Mandy Moore, who the choreographer who did La La Land, does the uh, choreography for our um, songs, our, our pieces. And they are expressive of what people are going through in their heart. And what you were saying before about how some cultures don't differentiate between music um, and dance, that's the very basis of Mandy's work is that it's not that you're supposed to suddenly start dancing and be a different person. It's the very core of what you're feeling and who you are um, comes out through movement and, and song. So it's been a really beautiful experience to be involved in doing that. Even if it's way outside of my comfort zone, I'm diving in anyway. Dr. Habibi, how about you? How could music be therapeutic in a time like this when we're all experiencing something unprecedented? Yeah, and 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 having that many, many parents have their children at home. And um, mm -hmm. one of the things that I'm thinking about and I've been thinking about the past few days is that um, having an artistic experience at home as a family would be a wonderful thing to do. And this does not need to be a professional concert it could be just having the sing-along time with your um, children have them just play on pots and pans um, I got a video from my niece earlier today that she's playing more piano um, just to kind of express her emotion and connecting and she's fairly young so giving children the time to um, to be in touch with their musical instrument if they're already in training um, I would emphasize that letting them play whatever they want to play. If they just watch something on TV and they want to improvise that on their piano, on their violin, on their guitar, that's perfectly fine. Uh, this is uh, maybe a little bit of time to be free and, uh, and more lenient around um, structured um, instructions. And just music has the power to bring us together and have us express our emotions. So if you just find yourself 10 minutes and maybe... Um, standing next to your child who knows how to play a little bit of a piano and then sing with them, um, try to improvise, um, just kind of make fun of uh, and make light of the moment. I think that would be really helpful. Um, other things that I've seen is that um, uh, creating groups on, on Zoom and on other virtual platforms to uh, perform musical uh, activities together. We are doing that for the participants in our study, for example, um, to have them be part of this uh, Zoom call that we have on certain night of the week. And then it's just 15 or 20 minutes of us singing along together. Um, there's not really an intervention anymore, but providing a space that we can connect with each other through this powerful um, intervention that we've had through our evolution. Um, so yeah, I would, uh, I would just really think about adding some musical or artistic activity it doesn't have to be music it can be that the whole members of the family dance together for 10 minutes mm -hmm. or putting mm -hmm. a puppet show or or something that has to do with arts because we know that through our evolution arts has been really powerful in in terms of connecting us with each other and uh, having this expressed emotions fantastic and i just want to uh, make a housekeeping note here that for those of you who are watching and joining us by live stream, we want to hear your questions and the panelists are available to take your questions in the final 15 minutes of the program, which will start in about 10 minutes. So please get your questions in. Um, the YouTube page should have instructions on how to do that, or you might just be able to ask on chat or um, at us on Twitter. So please get your questions in so that I can ask them directly of the panelists but I will get to drive for another 10 minutes or so. So let me ask you, um, Dr. Mark Tremo, because we know of course that Mary hears musically and she hears um, even just speaking as music, you know, a lot of phrases as poetry. Um, but I wonder, do different brains hear music differently? How do we experience music in our individual brains that might be different between me and you or you and Mary? Yes, so um, there's a, a very strong learned component of our emotional reactions to music. Um, mm. So um, I think Leonard Bernstein, when he gave his um, 
Harvard Norton lectures in uh, the wonderful um, Unanswered Questions series um, talked about how it would not really be possible for him or any other Western listener to fully apprehend all of the nuance and meaning in an Indian rag. Mm. Um, so um, a component of this uh, does have to do with one's um, culture and development, early exposure, um, even the nature of the expectancy violations that we were talking about um, are culturally dependent. But I do want to make the qualification that that's um, only to a limited um, extent. It, there's, there is an important innate biological component to uh, some of what we consider to be aesthetically pleasing. Um, and part of it has to do with um, perhaps the oddity that we humans seem to like everything in perfect order. Um, if the viewers out there may notice, actually, the books on my shelf are not in perfect order, but for the most part, the buildings, the windows, the doors, everything's vertical, horizontal. Um, we really like order. And what is characteristic of sound waves that comprise what we call music is that their frequencies of vibrations are very orderly. They're patterns. They're like stripes. They're like plaids. They're not random collections of uh, sound vibrations characteristic of white noise, like um, a noise on your video screen. So um, there is an aspect of this, and the, there, there are universals. Um, um, the, some of the universals have to do with uh, the tempo. So in general, it's true across culture that slow tempos are more associated with a negative emotional balance and higher tempos with a more positive one. Uh, if it's both high in pitch and fast in tempo, um, Gunlak showed whether it was American Indians in the 1930s or whether it was uh, Europeans, that that was associated with more positive emotions. And if it was in the low pitch range and very slow negative emotions, and then, of course, in Western music, there's a general learned association that sometimes is overstated, um, but is usually true that if the uh, key or more technically mode that one is playing in, the major mode tends to be more associated with positive emotions and the minor mode sad. So major mode, high pitch, fast tempo, happy, um, minor mode, uh, low pitch, slow tempo, sad, that seems to cut across um, the learned aspects like um, rubato in Chopin. Uh, so, you know, not every culture is going to get the, the nuance of rubato in Chopin the way we're not going to get the nuance in Iraq. And as I'm listening to Dr. Tremo speak, it occurs to me, of course, that there's such a relationship in terms of cultural context and our languages, right? Um, you know, I can speak Mandarin, and Mandarin is such a tonal language, for example. And so I wonder, Dr. Habibi, what is that relationship between the languages that we speak and the musicality of those, and then our brains um, processing or development of sort of musicality in our heads? Yeah, so you actually gave a very good example with tonal languages. Um, so uh, we have good evidence that um, individuals who have perfect pitch, uh, meaning that they can produce and they can perceive the pitch of a note that you play, mm -hmm. um, they tend to be more prevalent in, 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 in population who speak tonal languages. So basically the degree of differentiation um, it's more fine-tuned for them, and, and it seems that it transfers uh, that ability to the music domain as well. We know that the same auditory pathway that basically processes language information processes music information. It's all sound. And um, the frequency mapping of the auditory cortex, um, because in the tonal languages, you have to basically... Um, uh, perceived is very small variation in frequency and each one of those right. small variations map to a certain meaning um, that ability seems to really be helping with also perceiving differentiation in pitch in, in music 
Um, wow. So that definitely there is something there that there is relationship between language and music. Um, another thing that is interesting that we have found with our participants, the children that we are studying is the relationship between bilingualism and, and music training. And it seems that huh. um, music training, uh, as I said before, has some consequences in relation to better executive function skills and decision-making and planning skills. Um, and then um, we see the same thing with bilingualism. So learning two languages at the same time and ability to switch between languages seem to have the same benefits. Um, so yeah, again, auditory areas of the brain process music and language. There is some laterality in terms of language production being more left, uh, left side of the brain um, versus pitch perception being right side of the brain. But the whole system is engaged in both of these auditory um, dependent stimuli. Fantastic. Well, we are getting lots of questions from our live stream audience. And so let me turn to them so that we have enough time. Mary, the first question is for you. And the question is, was there a specific aspect of music that stood out to you after your surgery? For example, rhythm or melodic lines, the overall feel of a song or music or something else? I love that question. Um, I've had to, I think I had more confidence in, in the sound of words because I'd spent my entire life as an actor reading words that are on a page and hopefully making them live and breathe and um, finding the truth in them. And so um, I was was and probably still am more comfortable lyrically than I am necessarily with the melody. But as time has gone on, I've written, um, start started slowly to write on, on my piano. I'm still not terribly skilled, but I'm getting better. I practice a lot and um, um, I'm getting more and more able to um, pull my own weight uh, if I'm writing with other people or write by myself and find melodies that that express what I'm feeling and sometimes just what I'm hearing. But the interesting thing for me, people always say, do you start with the melody or do you start with the lyrics? And most of the time we start with a concept, just um, okay. a story or a feeling, but usually more like a story that is go going... Um, to express something. And for me, very often, when you've got a few of the words of that story, um, a melody is attached to it. They just come together. And um, that happens when I'm writing with people. It happens when I'm... Um, I've learned to listen to it and trust it. And then you do work on it and refine it. But some of my favorite songs that I've written um, have been um, songs that we, we, maybe we'd already written a song that morning and we had a little extra time and we just say, let's just write a song really quickly. And it comes out of us from someplace we don't even understand. So I hope that answers your question. It's, it's very mysterious. And the one thing, I want to jump in. That I would want to say to people is, you know, this all happened to me when I was um, past the age because we tell our children, you can do anything, you know, don't sell yourself short, you can do anything. And then there's some kind of unspoken age, some mysterious age where you notice nobody says that to you anymore. You know, you're supposed to be cooked. You do what you do and that's what you do. And the thing that was so extraordinary about this is I don't think it really gave me an ability to write songs. It gave me an obsession with music and perhaps an entry into a language that I then had to really study and learn. And so the fact that I could do that at age 54 is when it happened to me. I'm 67 now. And um, so the important thing to me is that I said, yes, even if some people thought it was stupid or didn't understand it or 
um, just didn't relate to it. I did it anyway. And I'm hoping that maybe during this time that we're all stuck in our houses, that people will say yes to some things they've never said yes to before and try things that are new. Um, because it is quite amazing what it gives you. What a fantastic message. And Dr. Trema, I heard you wanting to jump in there. Um, I want yeah, to give you a chance. Mary, I just wanted to jump in because you said something that triggered an idea, which is when you said that you'd spent your career looking at the words on the page and giving life to them. Well, what was mm -hmm. the nature of that life? The, the, the words were actually there. You were injecting the intonation, the way to mm -hmm. say it, the tone mm -hmm. of the voice, the pitch of your voice, the loudness, the pitch changes, um, the, the, the duration you would hold the vowel in the articulation. So this, this separation of music and language, while our reductionistic or binary opposition ways of, of, of viewing the world uh, apply to some extent, we have to recognize that in the real experience of communication, that vocal communication inherently involves pitch and tempo. And um, it just occurred to me when you said that, Mary, that uh, for an actor, um, you don't make up the words, what you do make up is the prosody. Well, and we bring an emotional truth to it. That's my biggest job, is to find the emotional truth of every scene. And um, when we do film and television, you're doing that scene over and over and over again. And the necessity to find the truth in that emotional life um, is part of why I'm fascinated by acting, because it's it's not finite. I've never gone home and, and said, I've mastered that. You know, there's always a little bit more I can do. And I find that really delightful. That's lovely. Um, let me jump to a question for Dr. Habibi and Dr. Tremo, you can jump in as well. The question is from Natalia. She asks, have you teamed up with music therapists and you're in your research? And if so, in what way? Um, in my work, we haven't personally worked with a music therapist. Um, however, we work very closely with musicians. Um, so uh, in a randomized control trial that I mentioned, um, that we are looking at older adults' ability in uh, speech and noise perception, we actually have teamed up with uh, our School of Music at USC, the Fountain School of Music, and have professional conductors um, from the music school who are conducting the group. So basically, we are doing all the science, and they're doing all the music, basically teaching them music. Um, going forward, that's definitely a plan of working with um, music therapists. It's really important, as Dr. Trema also mentioned, to basically learn the mechanisms underlying music therapy. The similar work that we do with medications, understanding the dosage, understanding the frequency, understanding uh, what music would work better with what population. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's a plan to go forward. So far, we haven't had um, the opportunity to do that yet, but we, we look forward to do it. And I um, and my understanding is that many hospitals in Los Angeles now, including the Children's Hospital, have um, the therapist full-time on staff to help at least the patients and children go um, through the, the difficult experience a little bit easier. Yeah, there are a number of music therapists um, around the country who themselves are also um, motivated to collaborate uh, to do these randomized controlled clinical trials. Three uh, very close to, to me, Suzanne Hanser, who's been on, on our board at the Institute for Music and Brain Science for many years and established the uh, music therapy program at the Berkeley College of Music in Boston, where I originally met her. Um, Connie Tomeno in, in, in the Bronx, the, the scenes you may have seen in Awakenings uh, with Robin Williams portraying Oliver Sacks. Actually, that really was Connie in the real world with uh, music therapists working with Parkinson's patients. And uh, Joanne Lowy um, at Beth Israel Hospital and uh, Mount Sinai Medical Center in, in Manhattan in New York City um, has uh, done a randomized controlled clinical trial in um, neonatal intensive care patients that was actually published in the Journal of Pediatrics. 
Um, and, and so, um, um, we've collaborated with them in, in, in the real world. Um, there's the frustration that there's no insurance coverage. So I do routinely refer my Parkinson's patients and my patients with um, neurodegenerative diseases causing dementia and behavioral disorders, the intermittent agitation, the anger um, in the frontotemporal dementias, PIC disease, um, can be very, very difficult to manage. I do try to incorporate music through the caregivers, but also if the patient can't afford it, a private music therapist, and we're fortunate to have a couple in our uh, community. Um, so um, it really is effective. Um, it is not available to everyone because of the circumstances with uh, Medicare and third-party payers. And I think um, all of us want to uh, push the envelope and get these kinds of studies done so that we can incorporate music and, quite frankly, the arts and entertainment um, in the care of the sick and, and make the hospital a little bit more like Disneyland and a little bit less like the old witch's gallows in Salem near my old home. What, a, what an image. Uh, Dr. Habibi, a question from LM. Why does live music inspire such a powerful physiological and communal response compared with recorded music? So what's the power of live music? Elise, can I ask you to repeat that question, please? Yes, yes. Um, the question is from LM, and it's why does live music inspire such a communal and powerful physiological response compared with recorded music? So what's the power of live music when it comes to Oh, what's the, the power of live music? Okay, got it. Thank you. Um, that's a great question. Um, so, um, so in my work, um, we have been longitudinally following children as, um, as early as age six. Um, these are children who are part of the program that is offered by the Los Angeles Philharmonic, the youth orchestra program that serves the underserved communities of Los Angeles and brings live music training to them um, to an after-school program. Basically, these children go every day after school. Um, this program is offered free of charge, and they learn how to play music with each other. One of the emphasis of the program is this social interaction with each other. So the program is taught mm -hmm. in a group. They all learn how to interact with each other. And they all learn that the goal of the program is not for one person to play well, but for the whole orchestra, this uh, ensemble, to sound well. So I think one of the most important things of playing with others, music, uh, music interaction, is learning these social and emotional skills. And we actually have had evidence that um, individuals who learn how to play music with others are better in detecting emotions of better of others better. Um, if you think about it, when you play in an orchestra, if you're a professional musician, you have to constantly follow the emotional, basically, tone of, of the orchestra, the, the conductor, the other musicians. And, and there's a level of post-sociality that comes with that. Um, so I think uh, if I understood the question correctly, so this kind of live instances of playing music together uh, seems to be really uh, beneficial in social skills. If you're talking about listening to live music, so if you're going to a concert or, or to, a, uh, to an ensemble or to a band, um, there is good evidence of synchronizing with others. So basically synchronizing our rhythm, moving our body with a rhythm um, has, has uh, benefits in terms of social behavior to others. And we've seen this evolutionary, we do this. We march together in weddings, we dance together, we, get, we dance together and, and we seem to have better social skills towards each other. And these social skills include being more empathic towards each other, being more compassionate towards each other. Um, so listening to music at home is always good. It's, it's very beneficial with many, many things, but I think participation in music, whether that's playing a musical instrument with others, which I strongly recommend and suggest, especially for children, because it teaches them a lot of social skills, uh, as well as musical skills, but also participating in musical events when you can actually see the, the musicians and, um, their emotional experience is very, uh, important and, and useful. This actually, the next question flows really well into the previous one. And Dr. Tremo, I'll let you take a stab at it. Um, the question is, 
What can you tell us about improvised music? So improvisational music like jazz, for example, and its impact on the brain. Well, there was um, th there were two studies on jazz improvisation in fMRI scanners that were published in the um, uh, past twenty years, actually, um, actually past ten years or so, and another on rap improvisation. So let's talk mm -hmm. about jazz improvisation. The two studies had different results. Um, the one that is most often cited and um, to most um, people that you talk with uh, might make the most sense and seem more robust, uh, in part because there's a lot of overlap with the results of the RAP study, is that in order to improvise, um, you do have to deactivate certain parts of the brain. We tend to think of um, uh, you know, doing more means more brain activity. Right. right, excitation, right. not inhibition. Mm -hmm. um, but the study by Charles um, Lim and his colleagues, um, when um, Dr. Lim was at uh, Johns Hopkins, he's now at UCSF and part of our uh, multi-campus uh, program in the University of California um, on music uh, research. Um, he showed that there were portions of both the left and right frontal lobes that actually decreased their activity. There were many other areas of the brain that increased their activity. And this has been provocative and is uh, open to speculation. I think we can all speculate a little bit about this based on whether it's songwriting or um, other aspects of our creative lives. Um, sometimes you really have to shut up that voice in your head, you mm -hmm. know it really starts to get really take control, right? This is what psychotherapists talk about all the time, you know, stop the negative self-talk. So, you know, you, you want to jam the auditory channel, shut up and have another auditory input coming in that actually is aesthetically pleasing and maybe actually has positive vibes talking about love and, and romance. Um, so, um, you know, there, there is that, that aspect um, uh, to it that I think we can all, um, can, can all relate to. I, I don't know if um, um, Dr. Abibi or um, Mary want to um, uh, speculate about their experiences in um, kind of removing themselves from the interface between the self and the external world so as to be able to perform a classical um, a piano concerto or um, write um, Glasgow. Mary, do you feel like um, after your surgery and the changes to your brain, you've been able to tap into a different part of yourself, maybe a more essential or core or true part of yourself? Well, one of the things I've wondered about is if, if this part of my brain it, it doesn't feel like it's something that instantly developed. So yeah. logic would tell me that I got access to something that was there already. The doctors may tell me I'm wrong on this, but that's how it felt to me. I had a grandmother who um, was extremely musical. And sometimes I've wondered, could I have done this all along and all that I got during the surgery was an obsessiveness? First of mm. all, why? I don't know why it happened, but uh, <laughs> about music or did I actually kind of cut through to a part of my brain that was there that I just hadn't accessed before? And the reason it felt so overwhelming to me, as opposed to my musician friends that have never known a life without music, since they, most, most of the people I write with were musical, their music was encouraged as a child and they were musical from childhood. So I've sometimes wondered, was that there all along? And I tapped into that. Um, you guys may have strong feelings one way or the other. I actually, truthfully, started to read Dr. Sachs's book, and I've read other books that he's written. The book that we're referencing is called Music of Philia. And um, I started to read it, and I got so kind of 
I felt like I um, it was being pathologized. What happened to me um, was being explained in a way that was um, kind of scary to me, truthfully. And so I put the book down and um, I just kept trying to muddle my way through what was happening to me. And, you know, thankfully, I've been able to do that. It looks like we're running out of time and we have a flood of questions coming in, um, which I so appreciate. And hopefully we'll be able to have this type of conversation again in the future. But I want to give one last question to Dr. Habibi, uh, because it's a practical one for a lot of us parents who have been homeschool teachers for the last few days and then for the maybe indefinite future. So uh, Dr. Habibi, what kind of music would you recommend for kids who are currently learning at home? That's a great question. And that's actually a question that I often get. Any music that makes your child happy and they can uh, connect emotionally with? Whether that's right now a classical piece of music that they learn at music school and they want to play it over and over and improvise over it, or if they just heard a theme of a song on TV and they want to try to play it. Um, you want to encourage them to emotionally connect with that music and through that emotional connection, perfect their skills. So I would be really um, kind of uh, looking at the broad spectrum of songs and um uh, exposure to different types of music from uh, different countries uh, as a mean of uh, teaching them about different cultures. But I think really one of the things that I keep coming back to and emphasizing is allowing them to emotionally connect to the music that they want to play. And um, if they like to sing it with their siblings, with their friends, um, right now from a distance, uh, but something that, that brings them happiness and brings them joy, because right now that's what is going to get them through to wanting to practice and, and get, get, get the musical piece better. So yeah, I would look at um, TV songs. I would look at movies. I would look at um, children's song books um, uh, from across the board and, and encourage them to, to kind of try it and then be really liberal about like teaching them different skills. If they're not playing a song from beginning to end as they're supposed to do at music school right now and they want to play halfway and start improvising on it, this is a good time to, to learn these different things that, um, that we get to be creative around and have the time and space to, to practice that. That's beautiful. Dr. Asal Habibi of USC. She is the principal investigator at the USC Brain and Music Lab. Tonight, we were also joined by Dr. Mark Tremo, neuroscientist um, and the director of the Institute for Music and Brain Science, who lectures at UCLA. So we have UCLA and USC both rep tonight. And of course, Mary Steenburgen, um, Academy Award winner, and also now uh, an award-winning songwriter. And Mary, I want to mention that Chris Novoselic of a little band we might have heard of called Nirvana uh, invited Mary to jam with him on the accordion sometime. So Mary, you have a fellow accordion aficionado who wants to join you. Um, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you all who have joined us on live stream for joining us on behalf of Zocalo Public Square. Uh, thank you so much. This was an experiment and I hope that you got as much out of it as I did. Uh, sign up for more events on our website, www.zocalopublicsquare.org. My name is Elise Hugh. You can reach me at EliseWHO on Twitter or Instagram. And we're all eager to see you again in person. But until then, we hope you continue to join us for more important discussions that shape our world, respect our intelligence, and expand our minds, likely with music. Thanks so much. <laughs>